Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Dr. Nishi Rawad, Senior Vice President of APRIS Health and co-founder of OpenBeds, about the impact the pandemic has had on behavioral health care services. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Dr. Nishi Rawat, uh, Senior Vice President of APRIS Health and co-founder of OpenBeds. How are you doing, Nishi? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Jay. Thank you. And we're going to talk today about um, dealing with substance abuse uh, during a pandemic and and sort of what kind of effect the last uh, several months have had on on folks who are are struggling with substance abuse, because it's obviously made a difficult time even even more difficult, right? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. you know, as you and your listeners probably know, stress and isolation combined with uh, the lack of social support during the pandemic, that's a recipe for disaster for those suffering from either a substance use disorder uh, uh, and or a mental health condition. And I, I, get, I assume you have some, uh, do you have some numbers and sort of some statistics to sort of uh, illustrate that point for me? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's unfortunately interesting <laughs> in that um, we know from early data that are emerging right now uh, that the opioid public health crisis was showing new strength before COVID was a household name. So there are preliminary data right now from the CDC that estimate that there were about 72,000 drug overdose deaths in 2019. Uh, And this breaks a a record that was set a year prior. And now in in 2020, they have some early data uh, that shows that we are on pace to to break that record again. Uh, We know that at least through January to May, right, there's been uh, an increase in overdoses by about 18%. Uh, and um, if you look at the data at the CDC website, uh, and, and they've got a great website there where you can trend everything, break it down by substances as well, um, fentanyl appears to be fueling that that increase in deaths. And obviously, I mean, it's been a difficult time for everybody, but, um, you know, the, the isolation and, you know, just sort of, I guess, almost fear that people are feeling that must be amplified for for people who are, are dealing with you know substance abuse problems, correct? Oh yeah, I mean we work with a number of crisis lines in the states uh, where our, our technology is deployed, and um, crisis lines are definitely reporting an increase in in calls related to um, mental health and and substance use crises. Uh, and again, you know, back to the CDC, they looked at uh, 5,000 people over the summer. So this was earlier, back in June. They did a survey, and at that time, 40% of people, of respondents, said that they were suffering from um, a, a common mental health condition like depression, anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress, or substance use. And then uh, even worse, uh, of people said that they had either started or increased use of a substance to to deal with stress or emotions related to to COVID. Yeah, and obviously, you you know, you add in possible loss of employment. um, Right. And, you know, certainly being cooped up in a 
in a house with, uh, you know, family members or being separated from your family, either one of those can cause stress. So there's a lot of things going on that can certainly, um, you know, lead to problems. That's right. Um, tell me a little bit about open beds and sort of how that works and, you know, you know, what the role is, um, sort of in helping deal with this, with this crisis. Sure. Um, so, uh, open beds is an APRIS health company and I don't know how much you and your listeners know about APRIS health, but, uh, we are a data and analytics provider located in, in Louisville, Kentucky, APRIS is, and APRIS health is one of the three business units of APRIS Incorporated. And what we do in the health division is um, we currently provide the platform for 43 prescription drug monitoring programs across the U.S., uh, along with analytics and decision support for physicians and, and pharmacists. And so, you know, we do this through millions of patient encounters every day. Now, OpenBeds, which I founded several years ago, and it was acquired by APRIS Health about two years ago, we provide a treatment and referral uh, network for behavioral health. And, and through this open bed solution, what we do is we connect providers and consumers to the treatment that they need, both mental health and substance use disorder treatment. And, and like I said, we're live right now across eight states. And I guess, what are you seeing as you're sort of doing this work uh, in terms of, you know, resources and, and uh, you know, finding those resources for folks? You know, it's, it's really tough right now. People are very short-handed and increasingly so um, in terms of locating available mental health and substance use disorder treatment because of the pandemic. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some more numbers. As of the fall, more than half of community behavioral health organizations have seen an increase in demand for services, substance use disorder treatment services in particular. But what's most concerning is that at the same time, because of a lack of revenue or um, restriction, restrictions uh, related to the pandemic, 65% of these organizations have either had to cancel programs um, or, or turn patients away, right? And, and nearly 40% of these same community behavioral health organizations, right, a, a vital uh, resource to, to people suffering from mental health and substance use, they say that they're not gonna last longer than six months. Right. So we've got a, a real problem right now with respect to access to care, but access to substance use disorder treatment, quite frankly, was not much better before the pandemic. Uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, good um, uh, studies that have demonstrated that anywhere from nine to 11 percent of people who needed opioid uh, use treatment. Uh, got the evidence-based treatment that they needed, like medication-assisted treatment and behavioral health counseling. So in short, right, we've gone from, from bad to worse with the pandemic. Yeah, and, you know, obviously with the focus now on uh, COVID and, you know, obviously there's a vaccine, you know, or multiple vaccines and just sort of, you know, uh, you know preventing the spread, um, do you feel that, uh, you know, behavioral health and, and uh, mental health is sort of being overlooked, um, you know, in some ways? Yeah, overlooked. It's a strong word, right? Because obviously uh, well, I mean, the, the uh, pandemic, COVID is, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I would say overshadowed, 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a yeah. lot of things are being um, overshadowed, right? Yeah. But Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that substance use and, and mental health, these are crises right now here in the U.S. And these crises are 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 being overshadowed and um, under understandably so. Now, look, the good news is that we've got technology, right? And although I'll be the first to say that technology can't solve the opioid epidemic, right? Or this, this mental health crisis that we're having due to COVID. Um, what's happening right now, and I've heard other speakers or, or people you've talked to say the same thing, is that these technologies or innovations that were percolating pre-pandemic, right? So they were, they were edgy, not mainstream at all. These are now commonplace. For example, telehealth, right? right? Or applications which provide cognitive behavioral therapy. Whether or not, you know, these work and um, are, are, are certified or regulated, that's another <laughs> question or can of worms altogether. But at least this is a start toward what I like to call the democratizing access to behavioral health care, which is exactly what is needed, right? So in, in essence, COVID has forced our hand to provide or, or to make behavioral health care more accessible. Uh, and I, I, you know, I can give you some numbers. They're, they're fascinating. Um, telehealth utilization has increased 3,500%. <laughs> this is data from August wow. compared to the previous year. I mean, that's, that's mind boggling, right? And what's yeah. even more mind boggling is that nearly half of those claims are for mental health services. And that's not something that people talk about. Right. So um, I, I think that now, again, we're, we're heading in the right direction. And, and look, you know, telehealth helps to overcome one of the biggest challenges for those in recovery. And that's isolation. People don't have to travel. Right. Telehealth saves time. And, and people who typically find it hard to access treatment, like people who live in rural areas, right, who are driving five hours to meetings or to, for MAT, they can now access treatment much more easily. Um, and I guess, you know, pre-pandemic, was there uh, resistance to using telehealth for, the, for these purposes? Or, or was it just sort of something, like you said, that, you know, just wasn't really being considered? Look, behavior change is hard um, mm. in general. And, I, you know, it's even harder <laughs> in, in, in healthcare and in behavioral healthcare in particular. I think that there was real skepticism regarding the effectiveness of remote meetings, treatment sessions. Uh, and we've had to overcome that skepticism in a hurry. Now, I think that um, the jury's still out as to whether remote behavioral health care, mental health, substance use uh, care um, treatment is just as effective as, as in-person. Uh, care, but I, I know that those studies are ongoing and um, there are data that look promising. Certainly, there are a lot of people on the ground who work at these uh, treatment organizations that are saying that it works just as well. And at the very least, it's better than not doing anything at all. Right. Yeah, it's better than nothing. Absolutely. Um, have you had any feedback from patients in terms of how they're experience is going with, uh, you know, using technology as opposed to in-person? 
Yeah. So, you know, again, one of the things that people don't really talk about when it comes to telehealth or telebehavioral health in, in general is that um, some people can't access remote care or, or these, these new applications because they don't have reliable internet, for mm. example, or, or cell phone minutes, right? Uh, and so you've got treatment providers who are trying to desperately set up infrastructure on behalf of their, their patients. And that's not, that's not scalable. But what's nice is that there's now federal grant funding that's in play to, to help people um, with that infrastructure, to help treatment providers help their, their clients and patients. Um, and now, you know, you mentioned the, you know, that eight states are, are, you know, sort of working with open beds on, uh, you know, sort of providing um, these kinds of programs. Um, how is that going? And, and do you see that expanding, uh, you know, as we, as we move forward? Yeah, sure. So I, mean, I told you a little bit about what we do earlier, um, but uh, here's some more detail <laughs> just to give you your context. Um, what we do is we, we offer a cloud-based platform that allows those who refer into behavioral health in a high-volume way, right? So think social workers, case managers, emergency departments, um, people who man crisis lines, mobile crisis teams, right? The, the drug court system. What they can do is they can use our system to see availability of both inpatient and outpatient behavioral health treatment services. They can use our system to get decision support about the right level of care or treatment for their, their client or patient. They can send referrals digitally uh, and close the loop. And then beyond that, we provide data analytics at the local as well as at the regional levels to identify gaps in care delivery along with what's working, right? So um, our state governments, our, our county partners, they can, um, they can look at the data and say, okay, there's a gap where I need to target my, my resources, or this is what's working well, let's, let's put more resources toward that. So they now have access to very granular data around capacity, utilization, who's falling through the cracks, right, um, that they, they didn't have before. So that's our clinician or what we call our, our provider-facing system. And then all of our open beds, statewide networks, um, have the ability to deploy uh, a public-facing portal. It's called Treatment Connection. And this enables people in the public um, who are looking for mental health or substance use disorder treatment, either for themselves or, or others, they can anonymously search for nearby providers. Uh, they can use a decision support tool that we built with the American Society of Addiction Medicine to figure out the right type of care that they need, right? Uh, and then they can actually go a step further and submit uh, a, a confidential online inquiry to a treatment provider. Right. So they can reach out and say, look, you know, I, this is who I am and, and this is what's going on. And am I appropriate for your services? Nice. Um, and, and do you see, um, is there interest from other states in sort of, uh, you know, kind of participating as well? Yeah, absolutely. I would say in, you know, nearly all the states uh, that we're working with right now, we're expanding um, our, uh, our deployment to include additional types of treatment services and, and geographies within that state. Uh, and then in addition, yes, um, we have interest from a, a number of other states as well. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, we would have hoped by now, you know, we're basically in December that, um, you know, the the number of cases, COVID cases would be going down and we'd kind of start getting back to normal. But, 
it seems like the opposite is happening and, and things are, you know, continuing to get a little worse here until, you know, I, I guess we're just waiting for the vaccines to kick in or something. But, you know, what's sort of the right. outlook, you know, as we go into this winter, you know, for, for folks with behavioral health, uh, you know, issues, you know, how is it going to, you know, get worse before it gets better? You know, it's hard to say. Um, I, I know that we expect cases to continue to surge. I think they're calling this a post-Thanksgiving surge on surge, right? Yeah. Uh, so cases are going to continue to surge. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, it appears as though a vaccine is around the corner and will be distributed to, to high-risk groups in two weeks' time, right? That's that's really exciting. And so but the optimist to me mm. hopes that by the second quarter, and don't quote me here, <laughs> but the second quarter of 2021, by then, people will feel less economic strain. Maybe the substance use and overdose numbers will begin to plateau, and behavioral health treatment facilities that are currently closed or are hanging on by a thread will be back in business, and in-person treatment will, will resume. I, I do believe that virtual behavioral health treatment is here to stay, though, right, for all the reasons that I described earlier. Uh, so that's, that's the optimist in me. Um, you know, that said, I think we need to plan for the worst. I think we need to plan for um, substance use uh, and mental health conditions for those to continue to, to, to grow worse across the winter. Uh, so, you know, we, we really need to do everything we can now to make sure that services are accessible to, to those who need it. And let's say, you know, whenever the pandemic is, you know, sort of out of our lives finally, um, you know, where do things need to be with, uh, you know, behavioral health act, uh, treatment and access to it? You know, obviously, like you mentioned, you know, last year things weren't great. Uh, even before all this stuff started. So, you know, what do we need to do as a society to kind of, uh, you know, really improve, the, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, vital service for, for a big, you know, uh, percentage of our population? You know, at base, I, I do think that people in general need more of a sense of connection to their families and their communities along with a sense of purpose and meaning. And, and I sincerely believe that that in part is what's fueling um, behavioral health conditions in general in, in this country. And, and that's, that's my opinion, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, uh, but you know, the, the CDC and SAMHSA, they pre-pandemic, were um, providing a lot of funding to state governments to assist with the opioid crisis, right? And state governments pre-pandemic were using the money to expand treatment capacity, specifically for medication-assisted treatment, right? Um, expand prevention programs and, and build out the necessary workforce uh, to do prevention as well as treatment. And those efforts, need to continue. State governments, uh, many of them are, are bankrupt right now. Mm. Uh, and I know that the, <laughs> the government is working on additional funding, but um, my biggest concern is that these initiatives that were put in place, um, you know, two years leading up to the, the pandemic and seem to be effective, right? 
um, those now have stalled and we, we really have to pick up where we left off because like I said, they were having an impact. Uh, I mean, are you confident that that's going to happen? I mean, I guess obviously we're going to have a, you know, change in administrations as well. So that could, you know, um, either, you know, I'm, you know, you can't speak for the incoming administration, but, uh, you know, I mean, from everything you you hear from what they say, uh, it seems like they'd be supportive for, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, funding. Um, but do you have any kind of uh, hope or, or expectation as, as a new uh, administration comes into office? Jay, it has to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm confident that the new administration, that they, they know this, mm-hmm. right? They, they see the numbers that are coming out of the CDC. Um, yeah, it, it just has to happen. There's just, there's no question. Um, and obviously, you know, you mentioned that once things sort of, you know, the optimistic viewpoint is, you know, we'll be getting back to sort of in-person, um, you know, uh, programs and, and uh, services for folks. Um, where do you see, uh, you know, you mentioned telemedicine, you know, the, the, this kind of technology isn't going away. What, what kind of a role will it play, um, you know, sort of overall in, in providing treatment? Obviously, not everybody can access it for various reasons, but it seems like it can be a very useful tool. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, obviously, um, reimbursement uh, policy is going to play a role, but I, I do think that it's it's here to stay, um, especially when it comes to, to behavioral health. Uh, I don't think there's any going back from here. I think providers have been turned on to it. Um, people have been turned on to it. You know, I was reading a, a New York Times article uh, last week about this. It was it was exactly what we're talking about here, substance abuse treatment, or at least recovery meetings going online. And there was a gentleman talking about how he was tuning in to a meeting in Pakistan, right? He has access to um, AA meetings 24-7 anywhere in the globe. Wow. That's incredible, right? That's really, really powerful. Uh, so, so, yeah, like I said, I, I just don't think there's any going back from here. And, and um, this is the very, very thin silver lining <laughs> from the <laughs> yeah. pandemic with respect to behavioral health. Yeah. Yeah, ho- hopefully we could have uh, come to this realization without uh, going through a pandemic first. But uh, but at least we've got, exactly. you know, I guess, like you said, it kind of forced the use of the technology. You know, we've kind of, you know, people had to, you know, and, and organizations had to provide it and, and people obviously had to use it. Um, do, you, do you sort of see um, it sort of being worked into, you know, uh, treatment plans where, you know, you might have, you know, some in-person appointments and then, you you know, you may want to do check-ins or something via, you know, via your computer or your phone or whatever. Um, does that kind of, you know, I guess it depends on, you know, who's providing the treatment, but, uh, you know, it seems like that would be kind of a good, you know, a good uh, supplement to what people are already doing. Yeah, look, I mean, intuitively, yes. Uh, but you know the, the physician researcher in me says that we need to we need to evaluate this, mm-hmm. and then um, an organization such as the FDA needs to uh, rigorously evaluate some of these ap- applications that uh, purport to provide treatment, right, to ensure that people are not um, accessing or even worse paying for for garbage. That's not going to work. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, and what would, what are some negatives of, you know, sort of these kinds of programs and, you know, what are some things that would, would get, you know, once the, once the evaluation is done, you know, what are some things that, you know, would be rejected or should be rejected, um, you know, because it's not working? Um, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I have, I have not, um, had behavioral health care remotely, uh, but I have had medical care remotely. I, you know, recently delivered a baby and <laughs> a, a lot of my, thank you, um, pre-delivery appointments, even, even post-delivery have been, uh, remote, right? And I don't, think that there's much of a, a, a difference. Now you've got some clinicians at behavioral health providers saying that it's just, it's harder to judge people's body language. Sometimes people are not as forthcoming about what they're thinking and feeling via digital means. Uh, so I, I don't know. Those are some of the things that clinicians have, have brought up. Um, but certainly in terms of uh, evaluating these uh, modalities and um, uh, treatment applications, we need to hold them to the same standard as we do physical ones, in my opinion. And, and uh, how long do you think it'll it'll take to really do a proper evaluation of, of these kinds of programs? It's ongoing now. Oh, it is already, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, I think this is the big experiment, right? That's yeah, happening, <laughs> uh, You've right? got, so, yeah. um, yeah, that's right. Right, people are 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 using um, telehealth. They're using these applications, and uh, you know, people are evaluating the um, the 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 efficacy of these modalities right now. And and they can do so on a scale that they couldn't previously do so, because, like I said, it's forced the hand of uh, people to to use these new modalities. Well, Dr. Robert, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time. This is um, obviously a very important issue, and uh, I'm, I'm going along with your optimistic view and hoping uh, things turn around uh, fairly quickly and, and, you know, we can uh, improve, uh, you know, these kinds of services for, for everyone who needs them. Yeah, well, great. Thank you for having me, and, and fingers crossed, Jay. Yeah, thanks. And that wraps up Episode 19 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and Happy New Year.